Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read, produced by Noah, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. You are listening to the TLS. This is A Way to Earn Death. Gene Reese's Life of Adversity drunkenness, and literary triumph by Amber Medlin, the author of Wild Pets, from the issue of July 22, 2022. Alienation was a constant for Jean Rhys in life and fiction. Born in 1890 to a Welsh doctor and a white Creole mother, Rhys was one of a few hundred whites out of Dominica's 29,000 inhabitants. People called her a white cockroach. In her unfinished memoir, Smile, Please, published in 1979, Reese wrote that from the start she felt like an outsider, a changeling. She was always afraid. Her mother ridiculed her sensitivity and flogged her until she was 12, at which point she gave up. I've done my best. You'll never be like other people. Her doting father trained her to mix drinks for his friends, one of whom told Reese, then 14, to imagine an island where she would be his slave, bound with ropes of flowers and whipped. It fitted like a hook to an eye, Reese wrote years later. After all, I'd been whipped a lot. When she was 16, Reese left for England, expecting to find a fairy tale, but London was a disappointment. At the Purse School of Cambridge, she was nicknamed West Indies because of her lilting accent. Later on, I learned to know that most English people kept knives under their tongues to stab me. Her peers were gleeful when reading Jane Eyre. Charlotte Bronte's Bertha, a spitting red-eyed monster, was, like Reese, a white creole. Having lost a place at Rada because of her accent, 
she trained herself to speak softly. After her father died, she joined a touring company and acted a chicken laying an egg. Soon, a 40-year-old bachelor set her up in Primrose Hill. He wouldn't marry her, but gave her a dress allowance and paid for an abortion. Self-obsession was necessary to Reese's writing. She scrutinized herself and lent her fictional women aspects of her personality. From the start, critics confused the writer with her less literate, more victimized creations. In a late interview, Reese sounds frustrated. I wasn't always the abandoned one, you know? Still, she drew on her experience of being ditched by The Bachelor for her third novel, Voyage in the Dark, published in 1934, in which Anna Morgan slides from mistress to manicurist before sleepwalking into prostitution. Reese herself slept a lot, then sat down and filled several exercise books with What He Said, What I Felt, ending gloriously, Oh God, I'm only 20 and I'll have to go on living and living and living. As volatile as Reese, her characters are vain, ruthless, and vulnerable. The protagonist of one short story is advised to grow another skin or two before it's too late. But Reese women aren't writers. They have no purpose. Their lives depend on their sexual allure, which fades, leaving them drunk and alone. Reese exercised her agency on the page. I must write, she noted in her diary. If I stop writing, my life will have been an abject failure. Writing was the only way she could earn death. During the First World War, she volunteered for two years at an army canteen in Houston Station, where she worked nine-hour days. Throughout I Used to Live Here Once, The Haunted Life of Jean Reese, Miranda Seymour draws attention to her subject's tenacity, her capacity to endure hardship, ill health, and mental breakdowns. Her difficulty in controlling fits of furious despair was also matched by a capacity, with a new dress or superstition, to believe in a glorious future. She married three times. First, there was Sean Langlet, Dutch journalist, bigamist, and jailbird later hero of the Dutch Resistance. Then Leslie Tilden Smith, a publisher's reader who died of a heart attack in 1945. And finally, Tilden Smith's cousin, Max Hammer, who proposed to Reese while still married to his wife of more than 30 years. In 1919, Reese moved to Paris with Langlet. At three weeks old, her son caught pneumonia and died in hospital. The Guardian's review of Seymour's biography hands down the kind of cold verdict Reese came to expect from English men. Her son died as a baby while she was out drinking. But in her own words, he was dying or was already dead while we were drinking champagne. Langlet bought the champagne to make up for fighting with Reese, who wanted her son baptized. She never forgave herself. In 1922, when the French police turned up on the doorstep, Demanding that Langlet return to his first wife, Reese had recently given birth to their daughter, Mary Vaughn. For two years, she lived alone in grinding poverty. Her short story, Hunger, counts how many days, five, a woman can live on bread and coffee. Reese believed in fate. In 1924, her short story, Vienne, 
written on fleeing Vienna after Lenglet's foreign currency dealings attracted the attention of the authorities, hooked Ford Maddox Ford, who was then editor of the short-lived Transatlantic Review. There she made her debut, alongside Ernest Hemingway and Gertrude Stein, under the name Jean Rees. Ford disliked her married name. Although Ford was with Stella Bowen at the time, Rees swiftly became Ford's girl. While acknowledging Ford as a mentor, Rees maintained an impenetrable discretion about the affair. She was ignored in the memoirs of the artists who flocked around Ford. She didn't like parties. I'm a person at a masked ball without a mask. James Joyce recalled only having been asked to zip up Miss Reese's dress while sharing a lift. Langlet was jailed for two years in 1925 and later banished from France. Reese visited their daughter, who was temporarily in an orphanage. This wasn't a completely unusual arrangement for parents who lived a peripatetic life. Ford's daughter was in one, too. Bowen and Ford offered Reese their spare room. Bowen later insisted that she didn't know about the affair, but she probably turned a blind eye. Ford taught Reese compositional tricks, translating a difficult passage into French, for example, before attempting to rewrite it in English. He introduced her to Maupassant, Flaubert, and the Russians. He helped her revise her sketches of Dominica and Paris, published as The Left Bank in 1927. His preface, the first 12 pages are Ford's own recollections of Paris, gave Rees literary clout. But her tendency to drink too much whiskey and fly into a rage, claiming she was being manipulated, grew tiring. With an appetite for sex, but not drama, Ford ended the affair. Rees drew on the heartache for Quartet, published in 1928, her first and most autobiographical novel. Like her stories, it was praised for its originality and deplored for its squalor. In After Leaving Mr. Mackenzie, published in 1931, Reese's second novel, Julia Martin is recovering from being dropped, a sore and cringing feeling. She swaps London for Paris, where things are not much better. The lights across the river are cold, accusing, jaundiced eyes. People muttering are shadows, gesticulating. Judgments are harsh and immediate. The maid thought, tart. To pay the rent, Reese had found work as a life model, a teacher, and a typist. Unlike Julia, a habitual parasite, she hated feeling beholden. Friends had to invent reasons for money arriving in her account. The novelist does lend her protagonist her own love of dressing with voluptuousness. However, her hands emerging from long black sleeves. In Reese's stories, as in her life, clothes, which Seymour describes with relish, are a kind of armor against a hostile world. Perhaps using such details allowed Reese to conjure a sense of space around each word. Seymour acknowledges this and other similarities between Reese and Julia. Both grew up in hot countries, both stayed in a cheap hotel on the Quai des Grandes Augustins before coming back to Reese's brilliance and how her prose approaches poetry. The world she creates in After Leaving Mr. Mackenzie is both uniquely alien and recognizably mundane.
She divorced Langlet at his request in 1933. A year later, she married Tilden Smith, who quickly became a literary wife, cooking, typing, editing, trying to limit his spouse's alcohol consumption. They had screaming matches, sometimes in the street, often ending in blows. He warned her that she risked making no money and being identified with her characters. He had a point. Voyage in the Dark concerns a woman haunted by her Caribbean childhood. In Reese's original draft, Anna Morgan dies during a botched abortion. But in the mid-1930s, nobody wanted a depressing book. The publisher accepted it on condition that Anna would survive. In the reluctantly revised version, Anna watches a chink of light under her door, like the last thrust of remembering before everything is blotted out. I lay and watched it and thought about starting all over again and about being new and fresh. Reviewers expressed familiar regrets about the author's obsession with dreadful and difficult subjects. Whiskey impeded Reese's progress on her fourth novel, Good Morning Midnight, published in 1939. She also threw her husband's typewriter out of the window. Sasha Jansen, an aging ex-mannequin, is fierce, bitter, sarcastic, and paranoid. Her fur coat has seen better days. She tries drinking herself to death, then roaming the streets to forget her past. Here is a woman who has called in every favor. She knows that death will come when there is nobody left to help. When you sink, you sink to the accompaniment of loud laughter. Reese's private writing was often wry, and her fiction darkly funny. Seymour points out the relief brought by moments of silliness. Very light, remarks a chambermaid in a room facing an external wall. The reviews were terrible. Reese didn't publish again for 27 years. In May 1940, Hitler invaded the Netherlands. All lines of communication were cut. There was no way for Reese to know if Langlet and Marivon were still alive. Tilden Smith got a desk job with the RAF. They relocated to Norfolk, where Reese was arrested for being drunk and disorderly. In 1942, husband and wife were drinking in a pub when Reese shouted, Heil Hitler! It was reported, and Tilden Smith lost his job. After the war, they moved to Dartmoor, where he died. Transmuting the loss into her short story, The Sound of the River, brought Rees close to breakdown. Her dread of publicity throws obstacles in the path of any prospective biographer. She destroyed letters. And Seymour is the first of her biographers actually to visit Dominica and offer a long-overdue exploration of its impact on her work. She doesn't begrudge Rees her privacy, but laments her peculiar coyness in concealing how much she read. Seymour's investigations into Reese are inseparable from her sensitive, close readings of the novels. She is shrewd and careful, using statements like, It's reasonable to assume, unlike Reese's first biographer, Carol Angier, who wrote Jean Reese, Life and Work, published in 1985, who was more interested in Reese as a badly behaved woman than as a writer and filled in the gaps in her valuable research with speculative italics, diagnosed a personality disorder, and asserted that Reese could only write instinctively, unconsciously. It's hard to imagine anyone saying that about Hemingway, who was also published by Ford. Harder still not to wonder about Reese as a mother. 
two months before the war ended, she finally learned that Mary Vaughan was safe. In 1948, Mary Vaughan scraped together enough money to come over and introduce Reese to her baby daughter. She had been working for the Dutch Resistance while Langlet rescued downed RAF pilots. Speaking of her marriage, Maravon neglected to mention that the danger of being recognized by a German registrar had been so great that she smuggled five grenades into the ceremony. For Reese's part, motherhood did nothing to narrow her ruthless self-awareness. On one occasion, she wrote to Maravon, apologizing for having never helped you enough or been the right sort of person for you. To a friend, Maravon admitted that Reese had a supreme egocentric view of life but understood that such self-absorption was a must for her kind of writing. Maravon emerges from this account as a stoic who did all she could to keep the peace. Perhaps, as Seymour says, she understood her mother's childhood terrors. Perhaps, too, Reese was easier to manage at a distance. Reese's third husband, Max Hammer, a solicitor, made her laugh and owned a house in Beckenham but he was gullible and optimistic, a magnet for silver-tongued crooks. Often Reese was left alone, which she hated. Her consolations were her books and three cats. When two of them were killed by the neighbor's dog, Reese threw a brick through the neighbor's front window, resulting in the first of several visits to Bromley Magistrate's Court. Out of necessity, Hammer and Reese took in lodgers. The first argument was triggered by a racket at night, while Reese was writing. Drunk, Reese hurled anti-Semitic abuse at her tenants before accusing a policeman called to the scene of being a member of the Gestapo. In a footnote, Seymour acknowledges that Reese's insults were frequently anti-Semitic, but almost always inconsistent. After several such incidents, she spent five days in the hospital wing at Holloway Prison, where she gathered material for her short story, Let Them Call It Jazz. Then, in 1950, Max wound up in Maidstone Prison for attempted fraud. On his release, they settled in Devon. The literary world thought Reese was dead. But the BBC learned of her whereabouts via an advertisement in the New Statesman, and Good Morning Midnight was adapted for radio. The broadcast, in May 1957, elicited letters from Francis Wyndham and Diana Athill editors at André Deutsch, to which Reese rashly promised a novel by the end of the year. That promise was empty, but a novel did emerge. It took Reese seven years to finish Wide Sargasso Sea, published in 1966, and in describing the circumstances of its creation, Seymour's book becomes something of a psychological thriller. Years past her deadline, Reese drafts and redrafts, flying into drunken rages and tearing up her pages. Local boys call her a witch. I am envied and hated, Reese wrote to a friend in 1963, adding two months later, the gossip is dreadful. Max was in and out of hospital, and in her correspondence, Reese misrepresented her situation as hopelessly lonely, even though loneliness was always more a state of mind than a fact of her experience. Or as Emily Dickinson, from whom she borrowed the title for Good Morning Midnight, wrote, It might be lonelier without the loneliness. Reese seemed oblivious to how many people were looking out for her. After losing her temper over a barbed wire fence, she struck up a rapport with the local vicar. 
Soon, he was visiting regularly, bringing with him a bottle of whiskey and shocking the villagers. During Reese's 19 years in Devon, Seymour posits, her correspondence makes it almost possible to predict the onset of a mental health crisis by the increase in her allusions to the unwelcome presence of largely imaginary rodents. She wrote to Wyndham about creating a barricade. Quite useless, of course. Also, there are alarming sounds from above where the hot water pipes are. Things larger than mice? In 1960, someone prescribed Reese amphetamines. She compared the sensation the bright red pills brought on to flying. Her progress was punctuated by fights with Max and fits of hopelessness. Her publishers tried everything to keep her writing, enlisting a local typist, telling another to feign an allergy to alcohol. Nothing worked. Yet in May 1963, Wyndham received The Makings of an Extraordinary Book. By 1964, Reese was living entirely in the world of her novel. Just as she was finishing the novel, Max died. Mary Vaughan visited but resisted pressure to become a full-time carer. I am very lonely, Reese said. Perhaps you will be the miracle that will bring me to life. White Sargasso Sea, published in 1966, tells the story of Bronte's mad wife in the attic before Rochester, who is not mentioned by name in Reese's novel, marries her for money, drives her mad with cruelty, and locks her up in England. A prequel to Jane Eyre, it is set after the Emancipation Act of 1833. Reese wanted to challenge Bronte's crude portrayal of the white Creole class, but in doing so, she had to confront her family's complicity as descendants of slave owners. The operations of historic guilt are centrally personal. Just as, to Reese's way of thinking, Dominica, beautiful but menacing, seemed to have rejected her, so the Calibri estate in Jamaica, where Antoine Cosway, whom Rochester renames Bertha, grows up, is haunted, a place where the smell of dead flowers mixed with the fresh living smell. Critics didn't respond to Wide Sargasso Sea as the publishers hoped. It wasn't read in its colonial context, but as an affront to Bronte. Yet it won the W. H. Smith Award in 1967, and in 1972, in the New York Review of Books, V. S. Naipaul recognized Reese as a great writer, describing her women not as self-portraits or alter egos, but women cruder and less gifted than herself, schooled by their society and the arts of survival. Reese is likely to remain primarily known to readers for this novel, and Seymour's biography will enrich their understanding of it. In the final chapter of this compelling biography, Seymour adopts the tone of a resigned yet affectionate godmother. After it became clear that Reese could no longer live alone, she moved into the Hampstead house of Diana and George Melly, where a suite was redecorated in her favorite pink. Of the three months she spent there, the first two were an almost unqualified success. Reese thrived as the acknowledged queen of the Bohemian household. Asked whether, if she had her life over again, she would choose to write or be happy, Reese cried out, Oh, happiness! There were good times, shopping trips, evenings at Ronnie Scott's, and in 1978, a CBE. But with age, the soft voice and manners that veiled a forceful will grew thin. She screamed and spat. She pounded the floor when she wanted another drink and raved about being trapped by some woman 
who produced hideous clothes which her imprisoned guest was then compelled to buy. Reese, feeling both beholden and insecure, passed beyond reason. She threatened to slash her host's paintings. Writing to a friend in Paris, Diana Melly admitted that she had thought she would be able to make Reese happy. I can't do that. I can't even make her feel all right. Back in Devon, Reese suffered a series of falls. In 1979, for six weeks, she lay in the Royal Devon and Exeter Hospital. Paying a visit to her, a friend didn't recognize her without the customary makeup. The hospital misspelled her name as Joan above the bed where she died. Well, you are a fighter, one of her nurses had said when Reese insisted on trying to walk without a cane. Maybe so, she wrote in one of her final notes, but what exactly am I fighting for? You have been listening to the TLS. This was A Way to Earn Death, Jean Reese's Life of Adversity, Drunkenness, and Literary Triumph by Amber Medlin from the issue of July 22nd, 2022. It was read by Adrian Walker for Noah. The article you just listened to was narrated by the team at Noah. Continue listening to more great journalism on the NOAA app or by visiting newsoveraudio.com. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.